that I want to share this morning. So 1 Samuel chapter 19, I'm going to begin in verse 11. It tells us Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed, put a quilt of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. And then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed and the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Excuse me, what? Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, Well, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naioth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Sekou. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they're at Naioth in Ramah. And he proceeded there to Naioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naioth in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Interesting, interesting story. David loves Saul. But Saul is out to kill David three times. While David was playing worship songs in the court of Saul, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. Three times he tried to kill David, but David still loved Saul. You'll see this throughout their relationship, that Saul tries to kill David, but David forgives and loves Saul. And each time Saul tried to spear David, he escaped. And now he's fled, and he's run away, and he's at Ramah, running for his life from Saul. And so Saul sends out these three messengers, these three companies, a posse really, He sends out a posse to go and take David, but when the posse comes to take David, the posse becomes prophets. It's an interesting story. Finally, Saul himself takes it upon himself to go and kill David. And when he shows up, Saul becomes a prophet. He starts prophesying. So the posse became prophets, and now the persecutor becomes a prophet. And in the soulful words of Marvin Gaye, I have to ask the question, what's going on? What is happening here? This makes no sense to me in the context of the work of God. In 1 Samuel chapters 10 and 11, we saw the Holy Spirit come upon Saul powerfully. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 14, the Holy Spirit is taken away from Saul. Mightily gone. And Saul is left with nothing but an empty vacuum that is filled by a tormenting spirit. But here Saul is suddenly... Possessed again by the Holy Spirit. He has the power of the Spirit on him to the point that he is prophesying one of the gifts of the Spirit. And I have to wonder, God, what are you doing here? What's happening? You give the Spirit, you take the Spirit, you give the Spirit again, and Saul is not in the right mind. Saul is in a murderous place ready to kill David, and yet the Lord comes upon him and he begins to prophesy. I read over and over and over this, and I had to ask, Lord, what's going on? The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And Paul says, avoid such men as these. I mean, he really covers the whole list, doesn't he? 
He goes on and he says, Among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Verse 7, and listen to this. Paul says, Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Man, if that doesn't define the days in which we live. Always learning, yet never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The Bible tells us that one great mark of the last days, the days I believe are in which we live, the Bible says that in the last days, knowledge will increase dramatically, but without understanding. People will be well studied. The universities will be packed out with great thinkers. Man will write volume upon volume upon volume of information. Study will go on and on. Daniel 12, 4 says many will go back and forth, indicating world travel, and knowledge will increase. And if you look at the 20th century, it has been unparalleled in all of history for its acquisition of information. The last hundred years leading up to where we are now, in the areas of mathematics, astronomy, microbiology, nuclear physics, medicine, archaeology, on and on it goes. In all these fields and areas of study, the past hundred years have been absolutely amazing. Mankind knows more now than it has ever known in all of history and yet has less understanding. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's amazing to me that along with the rise of knowledge, we see an unprecedented rise of paganism. Now, paganism is not a word of history. And I kid with my kids from every now and then, we'll, a cartoon will come on and I'll say, ah, oh, it's a pagan cartoon, you know. Well, that's pagan, and we laugh about that at home. Gang, we are living in a time where paganism is on the rise. Very, very close to home. This last weekend, some of you know, at the Environmental Learning Center down there in Cornet Bay, the ELC. A group rented it for the weekend called the Aquarian Temple Pagans. Is that right? Or the Aquarian? Hmm? Aquarian Tabernacle. The Aquarian Tabernacle. It's a pagan group, self-defined. And during the weekend, basically they ran around in black capes, according to Joanna Shook. They lit their bonfires. They had their pagan rituals just a mile from here. And this is what's happening in the world in which we live. That This group are Wiccans, basically, witches. There is a rise in paganism that we're seeing in the world that is stunning. And especially up here in the Northwest. I mean, it really seems to give rise to New Age and pagan philosophies and and thinking. And we're seeing it grow and grow. And I would say, don't we know better by now? It seems to me that 30, 40 years ago, people would have laughed at the idea of pagan rituals. People would have said, oh, maybe something, you know, maybe down in Louisiana somewhere that still takes place. I don't know. Maybe in some strange little pockets in the United States. But not, not with normal thinking people. Not with people who have jobs and families and, and live normal lives. No. Yes. That's what's happening. Paganism on the rise. Don't we know better by now? Knowledge does not necessarily imply truth, just as forms of godliness don't necessarily indicate power. Paul says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And we see these indications along with so many others that we are living in the last days. Jesus said in John chapter 4, speaking to the Samaritan woman, he said, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now someone might say, yes, but Jesus doesn't say which spirit we are to worship, does he? You might say, well, he said, worship the Father in spirit and truth. But some pagan groups might say, well, I have a different father than you. I have a father that I worship, a tree father, or an ocean father, a whale father. You know, Jesus doesn't actually indicate which spirit we are to worship, and I beg to differ. It tells us in the next verses there that the woman of the well said to Jesus, I know Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So which spirit, in truth, are we to worship? The spirit of Jesus Christ. I who speak to you, he says, am he. I am Messiah. I am the one. I'm the one for you to worship, to focus on, to put all your energy into. We talk about often to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, thank goodness we in the church walk in the knowledge of the truth. Amen? Amen. Although sadly, even in the church, it's possible to be ever learning while never coming to a knowledge of the truth. 
It is possible to have your Bibles open and to be studied and never come into the presence of God. That's the balance that we seek, that we pray for. We want to be a Word-centered church. We want to be in the Word constantly and studying and knowing God's Word. Because we believe that the Word is powerful. We believe it does not come back to God empty. He sends it out, it comes back full. And we believe it changes our hearts and our lives. But we believe that because the Word is spoken, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Word that you hold in your hands. And we also believe as we study the Word that God's Spirit is teaching us, is speaking into us. And the two together are a powerful combination that allow us to walk not just in knowledge, but in truth. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God together teaching us not just knowledge, but truth. And not even just truth, but the presence of God. This is what we really seek, is it not? The presence of God. To be with God. To walk with Jesus. To know what that feels like, what that looks like. How do we handle life on a day-to-day basis? We walk with Jesus in His presence. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I want you to go back and look at some things in this chapter. Verse 11 in chapter 19 again. We're told that Saul sent messengers to take David. They watched him. And they were going to come in the morning and, and put him to death. Michael, David's wife, said, If you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So she lets him down out of the window, right? And then she goes and she grabs a hold of the household idol and puts it in David's bed so as to fool the messengers. She puts some goat hair up at the top and she covers it up with blankets. So when you look at it, you think, Oh, there's David. Although I don't know if goat hair looked like the top of David's head, but apparently it was enough to fool the messengers at first. The thing that's interesting to me is that Michael first falsely accuses David to protect her own hide. You notice what she says to Saul when he says, why did you do this? She said, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? In other words, he threatened me, Dad. What am I supposed to do? So she falsely accuses David. But she also deceives her father and her father's men by bringing out this household idol. I'm telling you this to say that David's bride has a blemish. David's bride, Michael, has a blemish. You might be able to explain away the deceit by just saying she was trying to protect David, but you can't explain away the presence of the household idol. What is an idol doing in the house of David? Why is Michael now bringing out this idol? Why does she have it in the first place? The bride of David has a blemish. But before we get too critical of Michael, we need to recognize that the bride of Christ has its blemishes too. We in the church have our blemishes. The world loves to look at the church and say, they're hypocrites. And when I hear this, and some of you have heard me say this before, when someone says, you Christians are hypocritical, I always say, you're right. (laughs) We are. Because we desire righteousness. And we desire holiness. And we truly want to walk in that. But we're sinners. We know that. We're not claiming to be perfect. We're striving for it. We're walking toward it. We're asking the Lord to perfect us in His perfect way. But we know we don't have it all together. We know the church has its blemishes. We understand this. By the way, don't be afraid to tell the world that. Someone comes at you and is trying to downplay the church or trying to say that the church is, you know, you all think they're so good. Say, no, we don't. We absolutely don't. We know. We look in the mirror and we see the zits. We're familiar with this. The bride has her blemishes. For like David's wife, Michael... We may be living as the bride of the Lord's anointed, but we still have idolatry in our beliefs and in our behavior. What do you mean? On the island of Lapu-Lapu, which is an island right next to the island of Cebu, this is where we flew in. The airport there is in Lapu-Lapu. We flew into that and we crossed a bridge to get over to Cebu. On the island of Lapu-Lapu, there is a a huge um, figure a huge monument to this warrior named Lapu-Lapu. Now, I didn't know this before. I didn't realize this. I wish I'd studied history a little better in high school. But Lapu-Lapu is the man, is the warrior who killed Magellan. The great explorer, Magellan. You remember hearing about him? Some of you may have to draw way back to some of your elementary or high school teaching. Magellan landed on the Isle of Lapu-Lapu. There was a massive battle right on the beach, and Lapu-Lapu kills Magellan. Magellan is the one who circumnavigated the entire Earth except for the last part of his journey because he was killed. Magellan's ship ended up finishing the journey and thereby giving him the honor of being the, the, the one who brought about the first circumnavigation of the Earth. 
But before the famous battle where Magellan was killed, Magellan and his men landed on the other island of Cebu. And on the island of Cebu, they planted idolatry. Now Magellan was a Spanish, was a Spaniard. He was a Catholic, very strong. And believed in what he was doing. And when they landed, they planted what is called today Magellan's Cross. There are paintings of it. Where Magellan comes onto the beach and they take that big cross and they plant it there. And the, and the king and queen of Cebu come before Magellan and they receive their first communion. And Magellan and his men began to teach them Catholicism. And today in the Philippines, Catholicism is 85% of the belief system in the Philippines. However, it's Catholicism mixed with paganism. You can today, in Cebu, you can go and visit Magellan's cross. We did. We went and saw it. Although it was kind of funny to me, it was this big, big, huge wooden cross, and there was a sign that said, Magellan's cross is actually contained within this cross. So I didn't get to see it. <laughs> it was inside something else. But it was interesting because after that, several of us, uh, Russ and, and I and, and Andrew, we walked inside this massive Catholic cathedral there. And in spite of the poverty that, we, that you can see all around the city of Cebu, you walk in there and it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just beautiful, massive. Three, four stories high. And if you look up at the front of the, of the church, there are idols, icons to all of the saints. There must have been 30 or 40 of them. And I'm talking six foot tall saints lined up along the walls going up three or four stories. Everywhere you look, there were statues of Mary. Especially lots and lots of Mary. We came around a corner and there was Jesus still on the cross. And I leaned over to Andrew and I said, My body came off the cross. I don't think he's still there. And there were two women. One was Mary Magdalene and the other one was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they're standing there and they're all you know, looking very, very holy. Except for Mary's hands. They were a mess. Especially one that was closest to the little divider where you could stand outside of and look at this. Mary's hand basically had that finger left. I'm not you know, giving you that. It was this finger right here. Okay? The only finger left. And the other ones were all gone, broken off, and then the rest of her hand, the paint was completely missing. We saw why. A man stood there holding his little infant and he reached up and he touched Mary's hand and then he touched the infant's head. As if to transfer something from this statue into the head of his child. We saw other people lined up in long lines, longer than the lines at Disneyland, lined up to see Mary, to draw closer to her. Glass cases around more icons, and people were going up to the glass and just touching the glass or kissing the glass, and I'm thinking the germs <laughs> of all the people. People going up to take holy water and, and place it on their foreheads, and all of this going on, and I'm looking around and saying, this is, something went off course here. This is not about Jesus. This is about the idols and the icons and the paganism that is alive and well in the world today. Last Sunday at Living Word Church in Cebu, we talked about this. That any time we turn to anything other than Jesus for deliverance in our lives, we are being idolatrous. Do you have idols in your life? Any time you turn to something other than Jesus for deliverance in your life, it's idolatry. It's putting your focus on a thing or some other substance rather than on the Son of God. And it doesn't have to be an icon or a statue. I'm going to give you two very obvious examples here. And the first one is money. Money is an obvious example in our culture. Everything from finding your own personal security in a strong portfolio, that's idolatry, gang. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest. I'm not saying you shouldn't plan for retirement. But I'm saying if you're doing so to find security, to find deliverance from a, from a threatening world, it is idolatry. Anytime we use credit cards to bail ourselves out, instead of praying, it's idolatry. And I say this to my own shame. Like this is one that really kind of stung me. We get into a tight bind. We go, I can't afford to do this, but I have to do this. What do I do? <laughs> Ka-ching! Put it on a card. Instead of saying, Lord, you're the provider. You're the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know what I need. I ask you to deliver me from this situation. Rather than slapping down easy credit. Money is an idol in our culture. Anytime we rely on it for deliverance rather than seeking the Lord, it's a form of idolatry. 
Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other, and you cannot serve God and wealth. And the word wealth, when Jesus says that, Matthew 6.24, the word wealth is mammon. Mammon literally translated, it's a Greek word that means wealth personified as a thing of worship. An idol. You cannot worship God and worship money. Another obvious one in our culture is alcohol. And I don't mean alcoholism. It's an obvious example of subtle idolatry. The way we wink at having just a little bit too much to drink. And I'm speaking to Christians here. And I don't know where any of you are at with this. But we look at drinking sometimes as, as a comical thing. Oh, we were out the other night. Just, just had, I had one too many. And woo, woke up with a little headache Saturday morning. You know, and we kind of laugh about that. And it's an idol game. You might say, "Come on, Rick, back off a little. I'm free in Christ. I understand that." Let me give you a note on alcohol here. We were we were talking in the Philippines. We had a, a, a day when we. Um, just opened it up for questions. The five of us guys from America sat down and we said, hey, any questions you have for us or about the Bible or anything, let's just have a, a conversation. We had a wonderful time, but toward the end, one of the pastors got up and he walked forward and he said, I want to read you a verse and I want your opinion on it, Pastor Rick. And I said, okay. Proverbs 32, verse 6. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. He said... What do you do with that, Pastor Rick? I had the mic and I was like, Russ? <laughs> I mean, this is in the Bible. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. And we would say, yeah, that's all I do. Lord, I've had a hard day. I have a glass of wine because it helps me relax. When I'm out with friends, I like to have a glass of wine or two or three. Or I like to grab a beer because it just helps me relax and hang out with my friends. And I thought about this, and, and thankfully the Lord kind of tipped his hand a little bit to me and said, look back before that. Read earlier, Rick. And so I look back to verse 4 of Proverbs 32. Listen to what it says. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all those who are afflicted. So on the one hand, the writer of Proverbs says, kings don't drink because you can't lead well if you're drinking. You'll forget you won't do the things that you're supposed to do. So he sets this up and he says, Kings, don't drink. And then he says, give wine to who? To the perishing and the bitter. Are you the perishing or the bitter? I'm not. I'm not perishing. I'm going on to live forever. And I'm not bitter. I have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. So apparently... Apparently it's not for me. Those who would lead well for Christ Jesus would do well to avoid wine and strong drink altogether. And I read Ephesians 5.18. I continue to go back to this in my own mind. Do not get drunk with wine. That is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. You want to be filled up with something? Get filled up with the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you rather be filled with something real as opposed to some kind of stimuli? Be filled with the Spirit, Paul says. Here's the thing, gang. Our idols cannot deliver. Idols can't deliver. Isaiah 46, verse 7 says, Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. And by the way, the word idol, back in our story, Michael's household idols, some of your Bibles in the margin tell you what the word is. It's teraphim. Teraphim in the Bible, the Hebrew teraphim, has a root meaning, vanishing one. Idols are things that vanish. Ultimately, they're empty and they leave us and they cannot deliver. But Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always there. He is not the vanishing one. He is the very present one. Psalm 62 verse 2 says, He is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. All other idols vanish away, but Jesus my rock. He remains. And now I understand why the Apostle John finished his first letter the way he finished it. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, John says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then almost as an afterthought, John says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. 
Why? Because true God and eternal life, Jesus, can deliver you, but idols cannot. Now, I don't say these things to judge anyone or try to lay down a guilt trip, whether it be about how you handle money or or how you handle drinking. My point is simply to say that the bride has her blemishes, that we are an imperfect people, that we don't have everything together as we may purport to have everything together. But I'm so thankful that our Lord Jesus has chosen to purify us anyway. That he has chosen to sanctify his bride, to wash our idols right out of our homes. If anything that I've said about money or or drink has raised some issues in your own life, then I encourage you to take it to Jesus and talk to him about it. Lord, what is your opinion about this? What do you think about this? Because I can promise you this, Jesus wants to sanctify. Ephesians 5.25, it tells us, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. This is the bride of Christ. Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless, that the bride would be wiped clean, washed free of all blemishes. And this is Jesus' desire for his church. And we cannot accomplish this, but he already has. At Calvary on the cross. He paid the ultimate price to sanctify. If you're clinging to anything for deliverance but Jesus himself, I implore you to hand over your idols to him. Anything that you think will save you in this world, hand it over to him. Let him be your deliverer. Well, how exactly do I do that? Well, let's look at the rest of the story. We're told in verses 18 through 24 that Saul sends out those three posses to capture David. And every time the posses become prophets. And then Saul himself goes, verse 22, watch. It says, he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Siku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are at Naioth and Ramah. And he proceeded there to Naioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naioth in Ramah. I read the story and I ask the question, does the ability to prophesy indicate a right heart? We have at least two examples in the Old Testament where that's not the case. Where someone had the ability to prophesy, but their heart was not right before God. Think back to a man in Numbers 22 through 24, a man named Balaam. Remember Balaam, the oracle, the seer, the prophet, who could prophesy over Israel. And King Balak of the Moabites calls Balaam and he says, Come and prophesy over Israel and curse them for me. They go up on a large mountain. He looks down over Israel and he opens his mouth to curse and nothing but blessings come out. He prophesies blessings over Israel. He can't help himself. Now Balaam's heart was not right before the Lord. Balaam's heart was about the amount of money that he could get from King Balak. That's all he was in for. Payment. And so he goes ready to curse Israel and God won't let him. And as a matter of fact, one of the great prophecies of Messiah, of Jesus, comes out of the mouth of Balaam. Let me read it to you. Numbers 24, 17. Balaam says, I see him, I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And he's speaking the one on whom the government would rest. Jesus Christ. And Balaam was prophesying that, but Balaam's heart was not right. Saul's heart is not right. It's murderous. He wants to kill David. He is not in a right place with the Lord. He is out of touch with the Lord, and yet he still prophesies. Why? Two reasons, two things I think that are going on. And the first is the dogged determination of grace. God continually, even after withdrawing his spirit from Saul, he gives them opportunity after opportunity to come back to faith. To come back to the Lord. What's the first thing? Do you remember what what God did, who he sent to Saul when Saul was being tormented by that evil demon? He sent David. And David began playing his instruments and singing his psalms, worshiping the Lord. The Lord sends a worship leader to a man whose heart is messed up. Why? Because he's still trying to draw Saul back in. And here, as Saul goes to kill David, God overcomes him, the Spirit comes upon him, and he begins to prophesy. Why? Because God's grace is dogged. It's determined. He wants to save. 
He constantly wants to save. Uh, this, this old poem, and it's a fantastic poem. In fact, look it up on the internet. You can read it there. It's called The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven, written by Francis Thompson back between 1859 and 1907. Late 1800s, and this is what he writes. I'm just going to read a little section of this. I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him. Down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vistaed hopes, I sped. And shot, precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, saying, All things betray thee who betrayest me. He goes on to talk about this, this hound that is dogging after him, chasing him, always coming after him, speaking of the Lord himself. And the poem ends this way with the Lord saying, Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love, ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come the writer says, halts by me that football. Is my gloom after all shade of his hand outstretched caressingly? And the Lord says, ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. What is Thompson saying? He's saying, gang, that while man runs, God pursues. God chases. Books have been written about man chasing God, about us pursuing Jesus. But the reality is, He pursues us. He is the great seeker. He is the one searching the hearts and the minds, Paul tells us in Romans 8.27. He's the one going throughout the world looking for anybody and convicting the world, John 16.8, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is the one who convicts. We had this, this evening during the pastor's conference in the Philippines... The second night, two nights in a row, we had on the schedule revival night. And I thought, that's interesting. How do you plan for a revival? I don't know how that works. It works. The first night, we had worship and a time of teaching. And I talked about the rapture of the church. And people came down in, in throngs and were praying for closeness to Jesus and drawing near to Him. The second night, the second night I had it in my mind what I wanted to do. And God had other plans. What I wanted to do was encourage everybody. I wanted everybody to have a positive time together. A strengthening time together. We began to talk about in the, in the study those who were lost. And how much God loved those who were lost. And how much He sought and pursued those who were lost. And friends and family members among us who were not saved. How God loved them more than we did. And I was trying to get, do this really positive, upbeat, kind of happy thing. And it didn't work. Because when I was done, we began singing again. And people began coming forward. And the guys on our mission team, they came up. And they were ministering in prayer and laying hands on people. And they were coming forward and they were on their knees. And the Filipinos were weeping. One woman that, that Russ had his hand on was weeping so uncontrollably she threw up. They just heaves and sobs over friends and family members that were lost. That they were crying out for. And you know, gang, I saw that. And I had to wonder, when was the last time I wept to the point of vomiting when was the last time that I cried that I was so hard that I was literally heaving over those I know who don't know Jesus it was a powerful time but the reality is this gang while man runs away God pursues God's grace is determined to save as many as possible and while we might weep over those who are lost and we might be concerned for those in our families that we just can't seem to get through to you need to remember always that God is trying to get through but take the love that you have for that person or those people and magnify it by eternity and that's how God feels about them 
That's how the Lord feels. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the Father's heart. The Spirit creates opportunity for knowing the Lord. In the same way that we see Him continuing to pursue Saul and pursue Saul and pursue Saul, the dogged determination of grace. But I believe there's a deeper point here to Saul's prophesying. And it's really what I wanted to say today. More than anything else you hear, hear this. The point is not the prophesying. The point is the presence. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of God. Saul wanders into a region that is so full of God's Spirit, so present with the Lord that he cannot help but begin to prophesy. Samuel and the prophets are all prophesying before the Lord. There's power there. There is presence there. And as the messengers come into that place, suddenly they're prophesying. And then when Saul comes into the place, suddenly he is prophesying. It is the presence of God that causes this to happen. It's not the gift. It's the giver. Sometimes we focus heavily on the gifts of the Spirit. And we miss the Spirit Himself. The Spirit who gives the gifts is more interested in us being in His presence than us having His presence, as in gifts. God was so palpable with Samuel and the prophets that Saul was overcome. And that's the way it is with God. It's always about the presence of His Spirit, not the presence He gives by His Spirit. Now I want you to understand, the gifts of the Spirit are wonderful, supernatural powers that God has for you. That the Spirit has for me, that He wants to give His people. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us all about these different gifts for ministry within the body of Christ that we might care for each other and pray for each other and encourage each other with the use of these gifts and how they function as the Spirit gives them. We know that the power of the the gifts of the Spirit are also for witnessing outside the body of Christ. For evangelism, for bringing people to Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us and Acts chapter 1 also tells us. But the presence, gang, and the gifts are never the point. The presence of Jesus is always the point. That's the idea. And Saul comes into his presence. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said... You see, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Did we not in your name have the gifts of the Spirit? People will say to Jesus. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Dang, it is not the gifts of the Spirit that determine a relationship with Jesus. It's the presence of the Spirit in your life. It's being where Jesus is. Please understand, I don't downplay the gifts. But the gifts are not given in and of themselves to be fulfilling in and of themselves. They are tools of ministry. They are implements of the Spirit. But I believe the Lord would far rather that we bask in His presence. Lord, we prophesied in Your name. We cast out demons in Your name. We did miracles in Your name. And He says, but did you know me? Did you know me? Did you walk with me? When was the last time we sat down together and just talked? When was the last time we just spent time together? You might say, "Well, well, Jesus said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, that sounds like works. No, it's not works. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, the ability to keep commandments and to serve the Lord, that's going to flow right out of the love. In fact, that's a good way to think about it. That ministry flows from relationship. The power to serve God flows out of the fact that I'm already in relationship with God. That I'm spending time with Him. That I am before my Savior. The Bible tells us, Revelation 19.10, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the whole point. It's Jesus Himself. Knowing Him. Walking in His presence. 
Acts 4.13 tells us, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understand that they were understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the 70 who oversaw Israel, they were very down on Christianity. They were the ones who were behind the crucifixion along with Rome and the sin of the world. <laughs> and they saw Peter and John and they went, wow. These guys have been with Jesus. They didn't say, wow, look at the power. Wow, look at the knowledge. Wow, look at how impressive these guys are. They go, weren't those guys with Jesus? Why would they say that? Because the things Peter and John were doing were like Jesus. They recognized them as having been with Jesus. And we are invited into that kind of precious relationship. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to read this to you quickly here. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Paul writes, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul says, we're not like many, peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if you spend time with Christ, you're going to smell like Him. If you are with Jesus, you're going to carry that aroma with you. Now some people are going to smell the aroma of Christ on you, and they're going to be excited by that. They're going to want to know who this sweet-smelling Savior is. Others are going to smell Christ on you, and because of where they are in their lives, it's going to smell like death, and it will frighten them. And they will push away, and they'll say, I don't want any of that. And it's conviction that's going on there, because you've just been with Jesus. This aroma of Christ, let me put it to you this way. When I go out with my wife, we'll have a night out together, Maybe we'll go out to dinner, go to Costco, go walk around the mall, go see a movie. But I find that when I have spent the evening with my wife, when we get home, I smell her. Her perfume is on me. I smell like Cheryl. Just because I've been with her. I love that. How much more when we are just with Jesus will we smell like Him? We'll, we'll bear that, that sweet aroma. And that's the whole idea. It's not being shot with this amazing gift from heaven on high. Jesus goes, Spencer, Spencer can prophesy. It's Jesus coming down and saying, Hey, Spence, what are you doing today? Let's go for a walk. Let's just sit down and talk. Presence. The presence of the Lord. Before we left for the Philippines, I don't remember if I told you this, but uh, God wouldn't let me prepare. It's really frustrating for me because I like to be prepared. I like to study out ahead of time. I've got four years' worth of teachings from Genesis through 1 Samuel, so I figured there was something in there that I could bring to the Philippines with me and bring my folder full of teachings so whenever I had to give a Bible study, there it was, ready to go. And God wouldn't let me do it. I said, what do you mean He wouldn't let you? I mean, every time I sat down at my computer and said, okay, I'm going to open up some old files... I, I would pause, and I just, the Lord would say, no, don't do it. Don't you do it. All right? So I went to the Philippines with my Bible and an empty notebook, just of empty pages, secretly scared to death. You know, now, now Russ, you, you and the other guys, I know that, and they all spoke, by the way. It was awesome. I'll let, I'll let Russ tell you about his whole thing. It was... It was <laughs> I'll let you tell that. Anyway, but I know that there's an assumption that of the five of us going, that Rick would have no trouble because Rick is a Bible teacher, right? Well, the reality is Rick is a Bible teacher who studies very hard so that when I'm standing up in front of you, I've got some backup. I've got something I can fall back on. If I'm losing my way or the cost are starts to kick in, I can read the notes and I'm okay. But here's the deal. I was scared because I had I didn't have my Logos Bible study software on my computer with me. I didn't have a commentary. In fact, between the five of us, Ben Shook brought a strong concordance. That was the only study book we even had. And my Bible and an empty notebook. And the best thing about the trip to the Philippines for me 
was it forced me into the presence of God. Every single night. I knew the next day I would have one or two teachings and every single night I was there, Bible open, reading passages going, Lord, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to say? I had a Sunday morning lesson prepared. In fact, remember the one that we just did a couple weeks ago on, the, on David and Goliath? The whole idea that, that it's not about who David was and how he beat Goliath, but it's how David was like Jesus. And I thought, oh, I'll just use that same lesson on Sunday morning. Perfect. And Saturday night I sat down and opened up that and started looking at it. And the Lord said, no, not that one. And so I began to teach on and study and think about idolatry. And I didn't know why. Sunday morning that was the lesson that I brought and realized that that's what Jesus wanted to say and I tell you this just to say that it came out of presence it just came out of being with the Lord I had no other resources I had nothing else to deliver me but Jesus Christ himself the point is the presence the point in our Christian lives is being with Jesus now, I hope that doesn't sound vague to you. I hope that doesn't sound like, okay, so, so what? In the afternoon I need to go drive to a private beach and walk around and just be there with Jesus? Well, yeah, that's a great idea. Go for it. But it also means in the morning when you're driving to work that you invite Jesus into your day. It means that while you're at the place of work doing what you do, that Jesus is there, invited into your life. Then when you're around the dinner table, if you're ever around the dinner table with family or husbands, when you're with wives or wives with husbands or students at school or wherever you are, that you invite Jesus into that world. That you develop an awareness of Jesus Christ. Jacob, Corey, in your high school, when you're walking down the hall and all you're hearing is filthy language all around you, and I know that's what you guys hear, that you invite Jesus to walk with you, that there's comfort and strength in the Spirit of the Lord. He is so gracious. He is so good to us. There's one last thing i got to tell you here. <laughs> the point is the presence of God, but the presence of God is a sharp point. And if you determine to walk in the presence of God, He is going to strip you bare. And what happened to Saul? Last verse. He stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? That's a little intense. Saul lay down naked? Dang, the prophet Isaiah prophesied a year naked before the Lord. Stripped there of all covering. I thank the Lord, and I'm sure you do too, that he's never asked me to prophesy naked. (laughs) But the Father will strip us bare as we come into his presence. This is what he does. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes with with whom we have to do. Listen, that word open is literally in the Greek, gumnus, which means naked. All things, Hebrews 4.13, are naked. And laid bare. And the word laid bare is trachalizo. It's where we get our word trachea from. Because laid bare, literally, it was a term that means to lay open the trachea. It was a hunting term. That when a hunter would would kill an animal, they would lay it open from throat down to the belly. Laid bare. It was also used as a criminal's term that they would strap a knife below the face of the criminal. Strap a knife around his neck in front of his trachea right here so that he would have to face his accuser so he couldn't look down because if he did in the knife would go Trachalizo all things are laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do this is what happens when you come into the presence of God you are laid bare you are stripped clean you are naked before the Lord there's nothing that you can hide before Jesus Christ And as we determine to be in His presence, understand He's going to knock down your idols. He's going to strip away, bit by bit, all those things in our lives that would come between us and Him. Anything we seek deliverance from, other than Jesus, He wants to lay bare. He wants to wash away. But being stripped and having my life laid bare by the hand of God leaves me vulnerable to His tenderness and His gentleness and His mercy. And this is what's wonderful about our Savior. While someone else would try to strip you down and and lay you bare and then inflict harm, 
the Lord strips us down and lays us there to clean our wounds to wash us he is gentle and tender with us why does he do it that I might fully be in his presence that there would be nothing between us that we could have absolute and eternal intimacy do you want to be with Jesus is that the longing of your heart it's the entire point of the Christian life it's not how much Bible you can get into your head and we're going to keep studying the word but that's not the point It's not how much work you can do for the Father. It's not how much ministry you can accomplish in your life. It is about being in the presence of Jesus Christ. Just being with Him. If you understand that, you understand the whole thing. Jesus said in John 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Why, Lord? Because I want to be with you. Because I want to be with you. Have the worship team come on back up. Let's bow our heads for a moment. As you guys get ready to play, I want to share that uh, I walked in the door this morning and I had talked to Les yesterday and asked him to have something prepared in case I couldn't speak today. And he saw me come in and he prayed for me as Les is often, this is what he does what all of us are called to do he laid his hand on me and he began to pray and he prayed this verse over me and he had no idea what I was going to talk about today I just love when God does this let's pray this verse Exodus 33:14. and God said my presence shall go with you my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest and I invite you this morning to enter into the presence of God let's sing one more song but let's rest in his presence amen Let's bow for a moment. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. Oh, Father, I am am overcome by your love and your goodness and your mercy. And I am amazed, Lord, by your grace and by your desire to be with your creation. Jesus, I pray that you will grab hold of our hearts this morning. Draw us into a deeper place with you. And may we leave here without leaving you, but walking in a stronger sense of your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen.